Thankful to Ezekiel for leading us in our scripture reading, 1 Timothy chapter 6, starting in verse number 11, a powerful passage uh, that, uh, that a charge is given. Matter of fact, Paul uses this word charge two verses later in chapter 6 and verse 13 that, uh, that this is important stuff, that, that to uh, Timothy, a young man, a young preacher who's dealing with all kinds of, of problems, all kinds of discouragements, that Paul, the father in faith that he was to Timothy, is encouraging him to do certain things. And, and really, that's the, that's the message for us this morning. Is, uh, the title of the, ser- of the sermon is, Markings of a Man of God. Markings of a Man of God. There are several markings that I tried very hard to squeeze into uh, this two-hour sermon this morning. I'm kidding, not two hours. But uh, if, you, if you hear me pausing, if you hear me taking a, a second glance at my notes, it's, it's because there's so much there. I just kept going and going and going. Uh, what kind of marks does God want for the man and the woman of God to, to have? Hmm. So important. And so uh, this, this may be part one of part five. Uh, I, I don't know. There's just so many that uh, we'll just keep going because it's, it's all so good. And so the markings of a man of God, we'll see how far we get this morning um, the phrase man of God is mentioned in just a handful of passages in the New Testament, even more so in the Old. 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 11, what Ezekiel just read is one of those passages when Paul says to young Timothy, but flee from these things, you, O man of God, and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. In this verse alone, we are told that a man of God is going to run from things and to things. But that's what he does. That's what he's about. 2 Timothy chapter 3, and verse 16 and 17, a familiar verse for most of us where Paul says in his second letter to Timothy that all Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. Why, Paul? He says, so the man of God may be adequate equipped for every good work. That God has a plan for you, that He can mold you through His Word into a person that can be put to work for His service. I don't know if you've asked yourself this lately, God, what is your plan for me? We love Jeremiah's passage, that God has a plan for us uh, to prosper, and all these things. Well, what is that exactly? And, And sometimes we like to dream up certain things. Paul tells us right now, God's plan for you is for you to go to work. You ought to go to work to go and preach and teach the gospel, to edify the church, and to do all things that would, uh, that would uh, uh, assimilate into His will. That's, your, that's God's plan for you. And sometimes we try to complicate things too often. It's pretty simple here. That Paul says that we are to pursue, 1 Timothy 6.11, we are to pursue righteousness, and we are also to flee from things that are all, um, all too often... Um, in, 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 in opposition to those things that God calls us to pursue. And so, though our world today can continually gets caught up in, in, uh, in things like gender and race and, and background and ethnicity and, and, and social economic statuses, that's not what we're going to get caught up on this morning because the child of God realizes that all people are called to a higher standard. All people of God are called to the higher standard. Whether we like it or not, if you're a Christian, you are called to a higher standard. We are not to deal with things the way the world deals with them. We are to deal with things the way God does. Amen? And that's our call. 
And so don't get caught up in this word man or a woman. I'm going to use it generally. That if you are a woman and you're trying to grow into the woman that God wants you to be, this, this sermon is for you. If you're a young man and you're trying to figure out what kind of man that you ought to be, this sermon is for you. And so make it applicable for where you are in your life. Because just like there are characteristics and traits of what the Bible calls sons of disobedience. Look at Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 15. There are traits and markers of people who do things against God's will, and we can know them. There also lies markers of a man or a woman of God. You know, as parents, isn't that our prayer so often, that we're praying for the spouse of our children to be a man or a woman of God? Is that not our prayer? Well, while we're praying for the markers of of a man or a woman of God, are we teaching our children to be able to recognize those markers. What what kind of spouse am I looking for in life? What what kind of person am I trying to join myself to? These are important things for us to consider. And so our job this morning is clear. First, to look at the perfect Word of God, James says, and then to ourselves. And that, that action in and of itself should cause us to be, number two, humble. You look at the perfect law of liberty, and you look back at ourselves saying, man, So many flaws there. There should be an instant humility that takes place. Then when that takes place, secondly, we humble ourselves and see where God can change us for the better. That's that's the point of every message you hear, whether you're studying the Bible yourself, whether you're at a midweek Bible study with a small group, whether you're in the assembly this morning, that's the aim, is look at God's perfect law, look at ourself. Don't be discouraged by the flaw, but acknowledge that God has called us to live better. And then we change, we allow God to change us for the better. And so the the Bible outlines several identifying markers of a man or a woman. This morning we'll take a a look at just a few of them. Number one, the first marker of a a man or woman of God is known, is determined by what he or she runs from. Everybody turn your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse number 14. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse number 14. If anybody studied with me and alongside me, you know that this is one of my favorite chapters in all of Scripture because I go to it often. Uh, it's so powerful. It's so simple. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, starting in verse number 1 here, though first, verse 14 is going to be really our key, our key verse. But let's back up a little bit to chapter 10 and verse number 1. I love this passage here. Paul says, says to the, the church in Corinth, For I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers were all, were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. That cloud is a reference to God's presence, God's, uh, God's uh, bringing them out of, of their, their bondage that Josh just talked about a moment ago. Verse 2, And they were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink, from, uh, for they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them, and the rock was Christ. They were doing a good job. They came out of Egypt, out of bondage. They looked to God and saw that God was the, the, the God of all gods, the Lord of lords, and they followed Him. Verse number 5, Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not well pleased. Why? Because they, lay, they were laid low in the wilderness. Now these things happened as examples for us so that we would not crave evil things as they also crave. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, 
The people sat down to eat and to drink and stood up to play. Nor let us act immorally as some of them did and went 23,000 fell in one day. What he's referring to is, you know that God's, one of God's urgence messages, commandments to the Israelites was, I want you to know that you're a different people. You are set apart by me. You are my people. And as a result, you are not to go and mingle with other nations. Because once you mingle with other nations, they're going to draw you in with what you are craving to fulfill and satisfy your, your, your sexual and your, your bodily cravings. You're going to pursue that. And pretty soon, even though it's just meals and celebrations and festivals, you will find yourself bowing down to different idols. And so many of them did. Verse number 9 says, Nor let us try the Lord as some of them did, and they were destroyed by the serpents. Nor grumble as some of them did, and they were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, and they were written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. No temptation has overtaken you, but as such is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide a way of escape also, so that you will be able to endure it. Is anybody familiar with that passage, that verse, verse 13? Right? That God will not allow you to be overtaken by certain temptations. What's the context so far? The context is that Israelite placed them in bad situations that they would expose themselves to ungodly individuals, ungodly thoughts and types of thinking, and they were drawn away from the God of Israel because of their eating, their drinking, their celebrations. They went to these festivals, they went to these places and engaged, and as a result, they ended up worshiping other gods. They engaged in idolatry. So, I hear this passage used a lot of ways, and, and it's almost like, God, I know you're not going to allow me to, you're going to provide a way of escape. So, so I'm going I'm you know, to go to the bar next door. I'm going I'm to watch the game. I know I struggle with drinking alcohol, and, but I'm going to go there just to watch the game. And, and when things get a little too heavy for me, there's a magic portal that's going to open up here. Because, you know, the Lord's going to provide a way of escape. And maybe it's the janitor's closet. Maybe it's, the, maybe it's around the bend. May I that God's going to open up this portal and He's going to provide a way for me to leave. That's not the context here. The context is, if you know that that situation, that environment, is going to cause you to fall, do not go there. Do not go. Don't put yourself in that environment in the first place. Well, some of us will say we struggle with this and that and still put ourselves in that situation. And when we fall to sin, when we cave to say, God, how could you let me do that? How, do, how does that work? How does God allow us to, to have a way of escape? He says this in verse 14. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I don't want anything to do with it. I just want to flee. So guess what I'm going to do if I have the mentality of fleeing those things that are against God's will? I'm not going to go near wherever that place is, whoever that person is, Whatever is causing me to fail to my temptation, I'm not going anywhere near that. Does that make sense? 
And so that's the context when he says, therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry, that a man of God is known by what he flees from. How do you treat temptation in your life? You know what you're tempted by. You know what your struggle of sin is about. How do you treat it? You get as close as you can, kind of snuggle up to it. Well, I'm not there yet. God's line is here, and I'm getting pretty close, but, but I'm, not, I'm not fully. Are you treating your temptation like that? Is that what Paul says here? As far as I'm concerned, Paul says, I want you to run away as fast as you can, as hard as you can, from whatever that is involved, that we are to flee. And you might say, what did you say? A man from God is to run? Yes, he is to flee. A man of God is known by what he flees from because there is a time to run. There's a time to fight. There's a time to challenge. There's a time to pursue. This is a time to run from. Paul had already told his readers in in, uh, chapter 6 and verse 18 that we need to flee fornication. Anything that involves me being sexual with somebody other than my spouse, it doesn't matter what it is, I'm to flee that situation. I'm to flee that situation, he says, and now his warning is to flee from idolatry, right? Those of us in Recharge, we really did a deep study of idols, right? What the Bible talks and really tells us about idols, right? Idols were the pagans mean to localize and to worship beings other than Yahweh. Paul explains that the idol itself is nothing, but do not be deceived. It can be used by Satan to lead us into sin, church. That though the idol is nothing, it's just something I created with my hands. It's stone or it's metal or it's wood. The idol in and of itself is nothing, but the pagans worship this nothingness because they believed there was a real spiritual being that inhabited it. Idolatry is demonic. You might put Psalm 106, starting in verse number 35 in your margin there. Psalm 106, 35 through 37, where where the Bible says, But they, Israel, they mingled with the nation. Don't you love that word, mingle? I'm just going to go and mingle. I'm not going to do anything. I'm I'm just going to kind of just mingle. I'm just going to hang out. I guess the new word today is, I'm just going to vibe out. Is it, Miles? Is that what it means, to vibe out? I'm just going to go and just kind of hang out, see what the vibe is like. No. He says that's what Israel did. They were vibing out with the nations around them that they knew worshipped other gods, the Baals, the Asherim, the Zeuses, all of those other nations. It says they mingled with them and learned their practices. You ever have a child come back and say something that you know wasn't mentioned or talked about or said in your own home, but somehow they learned it? How did they learn that? They heard it somewhere. They heard it somewhere. You ever hear your child come back and, and explain to you what, what they learned in regards to whatever topic there is? Where did you learn that? Well, they learned it somewhere. Where have they been? The psalmist says they learned their practices and served their idols, which came as, became a snare to them. Listen to this. They even sacrificed their, sacrificed their sons and their daughters to the demons. The Canaanites had a ritual. They, 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 they worshipped a god and they made a statue, a, a giant metal statue in which this, this, uh, this pagan god had these metal arms that were outstretched. And the people wanted the blessing so bad from that pagan god that they, they said, okay, in order to really be blessed by this god, we've, we've got to give one of our children. 
And I kid you not, you can Google this. You can look this up, and it is historically accurate that they would place newborn babies, and they would, they would in this metal-encompassed statue, they would build this fire. Underneath, they would build this fire until this metal was completely hot, burning hot, and they would place their children upon those hands, those metal arms. And while the children were screaming because of the hurt and the pain, they would play the drums very loud to drown out those screams. They had given their children over because it all started with just mingling. Mingling led to eating and meals and festivals, and then they were introduced to their gods, and, and they begin to serve them, and they begin to, to idol, uh, into idolatry, and then pretty soon they're sacrificing their own children. You ever thought about in your life, how did I get here? Man, I don't know what happened. I, I don't even remember. I know I was there, and, and now I'm here. How in the world did I get this bad, this far? It all started with the first step, and then the second and then the third, and pretty soon I've lost control of it. I've lost control, and that's what the psalmist says. Another passage that talks about these, this idolatry is Deuteronomy chapter 32. Deuteronomy chapter 32, 16 and 17. Here's what Moses says. He says, they made him, the Israelites, they made God jealous with strange gods. With abominations, they provoked him to anger. They sacrificed to demons who are not God, to gods whom they have not known, new gods that came later, whom your fathers did not dread. And so in the context of 1 Corinthians 14, these Christians that were in Corinth, they were calling themselves Christians and still trying to partake of the Lord's table to say, I'm remembering your death, Jesus. I want to partake in this meal with not just you, but other brethren who also call on your name. But after we leave this, I'm going to go to the temple, and I'm going to engage in, 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 in uh, sexual acts with the temple prostitute, and that's going to be my worship to Zeus. So they started to, 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 do, to live both lives. Right? There are Christians back home on the res who, who they'll be in service Sunday morning, but Sunday night they're going to go get a prayer done. Because just in case... The God of the Bible doesn't work. I want to have a backup plan. Just in case God of the Bible doesn't give me what I want, I'm going to have something extra on top. Do we do that with ourselves today? Would we pray for, Lord to, for God to bless us, especially if it's according to His will? Do we doubt that God will provide? I love the passages this morning for Bible class. We've got to remember that it's God who is at work in us and not just ourselves. Can you overpray? Can you pray too big when you're talking about God doing what He can do? There is no such thing as a prayer too big when it's according to God's will. And so we understand that these Christians would go and they would, they would partake in these really two different ways of, of worshiping and living. And Paul says here in, uh, in 1 Corinthians, as we turn back, he says... In verse number 15, uh, sorry, verse 16 of chapter 10. Is not the cup of blessing which we bless a sharing in the blood of Christ? Is not the bread which we partake a sharing in the body of Christ, referring to the Lord's Supper? Verse 20. No, but I say that the things with the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not God. And I do not want you to become sharers in demons. 
You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of the demons at the same time. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. We can't do both. In other words, a true believer cannot sit at the Lord's table and eat the devil's food. Oh, but church, do we struggle with that? No, 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 I doubt there's, there's, there's nobody in here who have placed their newborn child on, on an idol that was heated up this past week. But I guarantee you we all struggle with claiming Christianity but placing ourselves in the consummation of worldly and carnal influence. And we like to justify that, don't we? Well, well, it's just kind of, that's how things are these days. How many of us have heard that? How many, how many of us have used that? I have, a, hey, mom, that's just how we do things this, these days, you know? That's just how things are. And so I'm going to go through a short list on what these things may involve. Again, this is not a, a list that is complete. You can fill in and create and keep going with your own list. Number one, music. What do you listen to? What are the messages? behind this music, that song? What's, what do the lyrics actually say? What's the content like? And would you suggest that song to our Lord to listen to? Right? We idolize musicians to the point that our minds are fed with garbage and we're completely okay with it. We're, okay, we're completely okay with it. Our children are listening to, to little, little this, little that, little whoever. And if you look at, read the lyrics, man, that's not a little problem. That's a big problem. You got all these different messages that are being blasted, and we wonder why we're being indoctrinated with such worldly ideas. What about movies? Right? I love movies. I personally love, we love going to the movie theaters. You know, it's awesome when it wasn't $100 to go and take your, take your wife on a date, but, you know, sometimes if we can, we will. But we have to remember that movies, also that, that Hollywood has an agenda. Hollywood has an agenda. I don't know if you can name a movie that was PG-13 today that didn't sexualize things throughout the whole movie. Right? They sexualize everything today, yet... Yet I'm included, church, but men, young and old, we, those of us who struggle with purity, we will sit ourselves at the feet of a movie for two hours, knowing full well that there are sex scenes in that movie. And we'll justify it. Well, I just came for the action. I, I came to see, you know, this is part seven of, I don't know how many Fast and the Furious movies. There's like 15 now, going on 16. I, man, I wanted to see what happened after that don't justify that. If you know it's something you ought not, not ought to be watching, then don't. You think about this. What about our culture? I love that word culture, right? No, I don't, actually, because we use that word culture. It's the culture, right? What about our speech? <laughs> Is our speech influenced by the world? In other words, if I'm at the workplace, if I'm at the gym, if I'm at home, Based on the way I talk and the words coming out of my mouth, could you tell I was trying to be a man of God? You ought to be by the way that I speak. Another thing I see today, and you can agree with me or not, you're welcome to be wrong, but I see today a disrespect for authority, that there is a message for disrespecting authority, that I don't want anybody to have authority over me. 
Right? When I look at today's culture, I see that. I see a message of self-gratification. You are the law. You rise above it, and nobody can tell you what's right or wrong. You're the judge, ultimately. Right? My parents, I don't want that authority. I don't want my teachers to have authority over me. I don't want the police to have authority over me. I don't want my, my local leaders, my governors, and the president to have authority over me. Well, hold on now. Whose teaching is that now? Because the last time I read my Bible, Romans 13.1 says, let every person be subject to governing authorities. Last time I read my Bible, Paul says, for there is not authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. So the Bible says, I ought to respect authority. I ought to be a person that learns to, to love authority. As long as it's not in opposition to God's teaching, then I'm to humble myself. I'm to be subject. And so I might ask this to somebody who struggles with that. How in the world can a person subject themselves to the Lord if they can't even subject themselves to a government? How can we do that? Right? So we have speech. We have a disrespect for authority. And as a father of three young girls, I've been praying a lot about this too, but that's the idol of immodesty. That we live in a culture that pushes the justification of presenting our bodies in a way that's not okay and justifying it by culture. Right? The Bible teaches pretty clear that our bodies are the dwelling places of God. 1 Corinthians 6, 18. But not only is our bodies the dwelling place of God, the Holy Spirit, the Bible also says that this body should be used for instruments of righteousness. Romans chapter 6 and verse 13. I'll read that verse for us. Paul says, Do not present your bodily members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness. But present yourself to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members, your bodily members to God as instruments of righteousness. So how do I use my mouth for good or bad? How, how do I use my ears for good or bad? How do I use my mind for good or bad? How do I use my body? How do I portray my body good or bad? Modesty has been lost in this world, church. Instead of clinging to what the Bible calls as pure and undefiled, I think we find ourselves justifying immodest dress because the culture is our standard. Right? Our women, young and old, are wearing outfits that leave nothing to imagination. And they make themselves a stumbling block to others. Church, this is something that, that is not easy to hear, but it's Bible. That we are to help others. We are to, to, to encourage others. We are to build up others. And so whatever part of my body, whether you're talking about mind, soul, spirit, or the actual physical body, this belongs to my Lord. Amen? Amen. And it's to be used for righteousness. And so we could keep going and going and going. You see how I said this is part one of five. There's, I mean, how can you stop our time, our energy? that those things become idols to me, that now I'm dictated by my own schedule. I've elevated my own schedule above God, and, and tell me that that's different than Israel bringing the, the pagan gods and placing them above Yahweh. It isn't much different. Second point and final point. Okay, I'm going to go two points. Let's see how far this goes. That a man or a woman of God is known by what not only they run from, but what they run to. 
What do you run to? There was a few years ago, first time we had been to, uh, to Disney World in Florida. Uh, we had a supporter that flew us out there and said, uh, just, just go, we'll take care of things. The first time I've been there, I think the closest thing that Crystal and I had been to something like Disney World was um, castles and coasters. And that was huge to us. That was, that was five star to us. And so going there, huge. And I remember walking into Disney World with, with our girls, and they were several years younger. And, and I remember, man, in my mind, I'm thinking, this place is for kids, right? I seen grown adults, men and women, grown adults. They were decked out from head to toe. I seen ladies, their whole body, their face was painted like they were going to a Super Bowl game. Like they were fired up for this place. And I remember we got there early. And I remember what they do is before the park actually opens, you kind of line up and you scan, make sure you're ready to go. Well, the park is so big, there's different parts to the park. And so once the park actually opens, I think it's 8 o'clock, people are rushing to the area they want to be in, right? You have like Frontierland, you have uh, uh, um, Tomorrowland, all these different lands, right? Different kinds. And so you have these adults, and they're saying, okay, I want to go here, this place, but I want to be there before everybody else gets there. And so I'm thinking, okay, we're just going to slowly walk our way. This is for the kids, right? No. I almost got trampled on. There was a guy behind me in a motorized scooter, motorized cart, and I'm not one to judge, but guess what? I'll tell you this. As soon as he got to where he wanted to be, he jumped off that thing and ran full sprint to the front of that line. And so I'm walking saying, okay, this guy's not about to beat me. So I start walking faster, and I don't know where I'm going, but I'm starting to race this guy, you know? Like, okay, you're running. The, the kids, yes, but the adults, we're, we're going to run too. And so you have people running to different attractions because otherwise I think you're waiting two, three hours, you know, if you get there later. So in a way that makes sense, sort of. But anyways, you, you just tell a lot about a people by what they run to is my point. I love what the Bible says about the man or the woman of God is known by what they run to, what they pursue. Pursue is the Bible word here. A man or a woman of God pursues, here's number one, an opportunity to encourage. An opportunity to encourage. Turn to Romans chapter 14 and verse 19. Romans chapter 14 and verse 19. Paul's going to build this big case about um, very similar to 1 Corinthians 8, 9, 10, and 11 that you have certain areas of Christian freedom and you have a, a dispute between those who are stronger in faith and those who are weaker in faith. And there's a discrepancy. There, there's a, there's a, a, a headbutting on the use of that freedom. And Paul's going to go and, and outright, he says in verse 19, so then we pursue, we run toward. We're the guy that gets off our motorized scooter and we're sprinting. What are we sprinting to? Things that make for peace. We are sprinting, we are pursuing things which make for peace and the building up of one another. Are you flocking to opportunities to build up your brother in Christ? Are you pursuing or running or sprinting to the opportunity to lift up a sister, that ought to be the case for us, right? You, you know the possible ways that we can affect each other. We had gone over ways in which we can, we, can, uh, we can discourage one another. That's an easy way to think, right, is 
how can I make this person feel a little, a little bit lower today? And all too often we're thinking about le- that list rather than, man, how can, I, how can I build up this person? What can I say to this person that really gets them, gets them encouraged? You know, just, uh, I guess, next Friday, we're going to have the opportunity, well, and this weekend, for a retreat uh, of brethren. We have the ladies' retreat up, at, uh, up in Prescott this weekend, and then we have um, the men's, which is next weekend. So I may put the post out there on TeamSnap and say, hey, if, guys, if you guys want to go, I encourage you to go, but let us know so we can get a head count and we can, we can let them know because so, they're housing us. I kid you not, probably 20 seconds later, I get a text from Miles. And Miles said, hey, Evan, are you still going up to the retreat? I said, yes. He goes, can I go with you? I said, I already had you down, man. Already had, your seat's waiting right there. And he had already made that known to us that he wanted to go. But he's, he's not wasting time. It was so encouraging to me to see him say, that's where I want to be. Lord knows when I was his age, I was everywhere else. But... How many times do we take the time to encourage and lift up others that really need it, right? Paul's going to go on to point, that, point out that knowledge and love must work together. I want to make this point real quick. Knowledge and love m- must work together, right? In 1 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 1, Paul says this, Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. And so the strong Christian has spiritual knowledge, but if the stronger Christian doesn't practice love, then his knowledge will hurt the weak Christian. Knowledge must be balanced by love and edification. There's got to be a balance there. Here's an example. Um, I think all of us have gone through this, right? A little child trying to sleep in their own bedroom for the first time, and, and they're scared, right? They're afraid. Mom, Dad, there's a monster in my room. There's a monster in my room, my closet, under my bed, whatever it is. And, there's, and, and they come into our room. We're like, well, nobody's there. I, I, I promise you there's no monster in there. Us dads, guess what? We'll say, you know, sleep with the monster. You know, just go to bed. But mom doesn't do that, right? And so even though mom knows there is no monster in their room, does that knowledge alone help the child sleep at night? Does just the knowledge alone of knowing there's no monster in there, everything's okay, does just their knowledge alone help the child become comfortable? No. What happens? There has to be a demonstration of love. That's why the moms are so good. That's why I wanted to go to mom and not dad, because mom demonstrated the love, you know, a lot lot more. And so mom's going to go into the room, sit down, and and chit-chat with the child, Talk to the child and, and, and ask, why, well, why are you afraid? Well, let's go look under the bed. Let's go look in the closet. Let's go, and they're going to demonstrate that, that, that gentleness. Guess who? Guess, guess, guess who now can sleep? Because not just knowledge was demonstrated, but love as well. You get what I'm saying? That love and knowledge need to go hand in hand. And the man or the woman of God, we run toward any opportunity to give knowledge with love to other folks. We run to that. It's an opportunity we don't want to leave behind. It's there, and we're excited for it, and we pursue it. Second thing, a man or a woman of God pursues or runs toward godliness. And here we're going to go to the passage that we began with, 1 Timothy 6 and verse 11. 
few more minutes, church. A few more minutes. 1 Timothy 6 and verse 11, But flee from these things, you man of God, and pursue. And he's going to give a list here. And you guys know how much I love lists. Number one, he's going to pursue what? Righteousness. Right? Righteousness literally means personal integrity. It means who are you when nobody's home with you? Who are you at home behind closed door? That's, that's godliness. That's righteousness. Talks about your character. So we're pursuing righteousness. Number two, we're pursuing godliness. It means your own practical, your, your reverence for God. Your own practical, like you make decisions every single day because you want to satisfy your Lord. That, that's what that word is. Number three is the man or the woman of God pursues faith, right? The better translation would be faithfulness, right? It has well been said that the greatest ability is dependability. How dependable are you on behalf of God? We always talk about God being faithful, and that's so absolutely He is. But you'll notice when you study your Bible, we are just as we are stewards, just like God is a steward of our souls. God asks us to be a steward of His things, especially the gospel message. And so how dependable am, am I for God and for my church? Number four, he says, we pursue after love. Right? This is agape love. This is self-sacrificing. I, I'm not looking for love in return. I'm just doing what, the best, what is in the best interest of you. That's this love. Number five, patience. We pursue patience. If patience was a ride in Disney World, that's the last ride I personally would try to get on. Right? That's just something I struggle with. I know it, but it's something that we try to pursue after, right? It carries the idea of endurance, right? It's sticking it out when the going is tough, right? It's not a complacency that waits, but it's a courage that continues in hard places. That's what patience is. And then finally, the last word in verse number 11 of 1 Timothy 6 is, is meekness. Uh, do not be deceived. Meekness is not weakness, as the world would tell us. Instead, it is power under control. I love the illustration that Josh gives. You, you think about how powerful a horse is, like a full-grown horse. How powerful is that? And yet, you can have a child, two, three, four years old, get on this and direct it because there's a bit in the mouth and you have reins. It's power under control. That's what meekness is. Courageous endurance without meekness could make a person become a tyrant make them become a tyrant. And so church, if there's one thing that we could do for ourselves that's going to help us in the long run, it's to ask ourselves, what does the man of God or what does the man of the woman of God look like? And what are we doing to try to allow God to change us to look like that man or woman? This morning, we have the opportunity to hear the gospel message. And, and as the Bible, especially the New Testament states that once you hear the gospel message, you can, you can choose to be convicted by it or you can deny it and go on your way. You have that choice this morning. If the Bible has convicted you by its message, if you know that you are not right with God, then the Bible says that you respond to the gospel message in full conviction, ready to turn away from whatever sin or whatever sinful lifestyle that you're engaged in. And then when we repent, the Bible says... In Acts chapter 2, you repent and you're baptized into Christ. That's the giving up of, of I'm, not my, I'm not my own God now, that Jesus is my Lord, and I'm ready to give my life to Him. And when you come up out of that water, the Bible says that you have been added to the church of Christ. 
that God has transferred you from the domain of darkness, Colossians chapter 1, into the area of the, the, the marvelous light, which is His Son. If you need to do that, or if you're just a Christian who's struggling, then right now is a chance for us to, to wrap our arms around you and pray for you. If there's any need, especially when it comes to you trying to equip yourself with the markings of a man or a woman of God, please come as we stand and we sing our final song.